Welcome to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book, with Susie Chase. She's just a home cook in New York City, sitting at her dining room table, talking to cookbook authors. My name is Kent Rollins, and uh, we are so proud and honored to have this cookbook come out, Faith, Family, and the Feast. Me and Shannon worked hard for this one. We want people to know that uh, we all need a little more helpings of this Faith, Family, and the Feast in this world today. We could really use your insight and wisdom right now during this coronavirus pandemic. So out on the trail Naturally, you've been social distancing for years, and you've also had to plan your grocery list very, very carefully because you go out on the range miles from civilization for what, weeks, is it? Yeah, sometimes five, six weeks at a time, darling. Uh, you know, we've we've always been people that learned how to improvise. When I was growing up, you know, there we were 14 miles from town, and you didn't just go off to town and think, hey, I'm going to buy this or I'm going to buy that because they might not have it. My mother taught me this may call for this in a recipe, but there's something that can take its place and you've already got it. And Shan used to tell me that she said, I think that's why you did so good on Chop Grill Masters is because you learn to improvise and get by with stuff you didn't even know what was. And uh, it's that way today for folks. I know in, in some places that there's stores that I won't say they're not fully stocked. It's just that they've run out of stock. And it's supply and demand sometimes gets a little ahead of itself. But there's so many things that you can use to take the place of something else. Uh, one of the greatest ingredients that I ever found out that could help a lot was mayonnaise. You know, I've put mayonnaise in many a recipe that called for eggs, and uh, it's hard to fry mayonnaise for, for breakfast. Now, I ain't done that yet. If you're having mayonnaise and, egg, and bacon, I think them cowboys might have run me out of camp. But <laughs> we've made a lot of cakes with it, uh, put it in a lot of bread, and and that's another deal. You know, we, we use a lot of sourdough, uh, and sourdough starter can take the place of any recipe that calls for milk or buttermilk. So it's a time to get in the kitchen, darling, and just uh, have a good time, and we'll all get through. Now, what about the cheaper cuts of meat? What could we do with those? You know, there's uh, there's a lot of cuts of meat that I'll call them value cuts, you know, and you can, uh, you can get some... For better lack of words, I'll just say tougher cuts of meat. And uh, that can be some some round, some bottom round, some top round. A lot of stuff that they might cube and make tender, you can still take that same slice of meat and uh, go ahead and cook that down. Maybe uh, stew it down if you need to make a stew, but uh, it's really good if you can make you some, some mushroom gravy to put on that and just make a smothered steak. And uh, you can lay that on a piece of that sourdough bread covered up with gravy and meat. I think you'd eat like a king. So food insecurity has to be weighing on people's minds right now with people losing their jobs and schools shut down. And cities are basically closed. So give us like five grocery items you think we should be buying if we're struggling financially. Well, I think of something that's uh, non-perishable if you can find them. I mean, there's a lot of ways you can use a can of beans, you know, and that's not just beans right out of the can. You can mix something with it, uh, you know, whether it be ground turkey, ground pork, ground beef, and you can get by. But we're always uh, trying to remember that we always have in our house is um, is some type of protein, and I, I prefer that to be beef. But we've got to we take what we can get, and most of the time we're very fortunate to have it all. 
but also coffee, flour, sugar. And some if you can find dry beans, dry pasta, you know, that stuff will keep forever. It'll stay on the shelf forever. And uh, just today, Susie, you know, there's a lot of folks out there that are, are looking for something they can make a recipe with. And sardines is very plentiful in our little grocery store. So instead of using like salmon to make a salmon patty, you can use that same can of sardines. Just make sure you drain that oil off of it good. And if you don't have an egg, Put mayonnaise in there. It'll work. That's a good tip. So chicken is cheap, and we can prepare chicken infinite ways. What should we be looking for in chicken? The whole chicken or pieces? Well, if you know how to cut a chicken up, you really, if you're trying to buy the whole pieces, it's cheaper just to buy a whole chicken and cut it up yourself. Uh, We usually try to buy chicken when it's on sale because it does freeze well. Uh, It's... You know, thighs are usually pretty cheap. If you can buy some thighs and some legs, hey, them things, they make great chicken and dumplings also, which goes back to that sourdough starter and that sourdough bread. What are your thoughts on bouillon? Bouillon. You know, I've used a lot of powdered stuff in my life, and I I do love some uh, beef bouillon and chicken both. Uh, there's another one out there that I've come to be uh, a fan of, and that's uh, Condipolo, which is a Spanish version of some chicken uh, broth granules, and it works well, too. But uh, you can make your own uh, beef stock with that stuff or chicken stock, and uh, it's just good as gold. So rice combined with beans is a complete protein. How should we be seasoning this? Well, if it's at my house and we're having rice and beans, and you can probably find them, uh, I love to use some dried ancho chilies. And all you got to do to any kind of dried pepper like that is either crush it really good and use it or just uh, uh, steam it really good, boil it in water, and then take it out, run it through the blender, or just mash it really well and put it back in there with them beans and rice. And mm, it's better than Taco Bell. What do you recommend we cook big batches of to freeze? Well, if you can get... An old tough cut of meat, and I don't mean old as in old old age, but if you can just get a, any tough cut of meat, or maybe you can get the end of a chuck roast, or maybe there's part of that on the hindquarter back around there that you can get. Stew is so easy to make, and it doesn't have to have all the ingredients that we used to think we have. If you can just get by with throwing an onion in there with that, letting it cook, maybe some of them beans too, peppers, jalapenos. It freezes really well. Uh, chili's the same way, and you can make that out of anything. We're going to make it with beef or venison or, or elk, something like that, but it can be made out of turkey. It can be made out of chicken, and it also freezes well. But uh, we try to make enough big old pot of pinto beans or something like that that we can freeze, and they'll last us a long time. So your cookbook is called Faith, Family, and the Feast. In terms of faith and hope, how are you dealing with this scary time? Well, darling, every day to us is a holiday. And um, we get up every morning, we give thanks to the good Lord for the breath we get to take in our lungs and the things that we get to do. I never take them for granted. And uh, I'm not for sure what's going to happen with all this going around. And I know it affects a lot of folks. And my heart goes out to each and every one of them. And uh, but you, you have to remember, too, this, it will have a silver lining. Uh, I've never seen the darkness stay. The sun always shines. God's going to part them clouds, and sunshine will rain down again. There will be smiles on people's faces. You won't be social distance. You'll be able to get around and visit folks. But, hey, there's a lot of you out there right now that's listening that uh, you're, you're in a hotel room, you're in an apartment, you're at your house with your family, but you're surrounded with them. 
and uh, that's family and that's friends and there's phones and there's computers and uh, you can stay in touch and uh, let's just all be smart let's be safe but count them blessings because there are a lot of folks out there putting their life on the line for us and uh, we just need to be mindful of that well i'm just so grateful for your advice thanks so much Why, thank you, Susie. It is a pleasure, and uh, God bless you, darling, so much. You too. For more cookery by the book and to see what recipe I made out of this cookbook, head on over to Cookery by the Book on Instagram. Now on with the show. Back in 2015, you were my second cookbook podcast with A Taste of Cowboy, another cookbook you wrote with your wife, Shannon. I think you and Shannon are the only cookbook authors out there right now who can bring stories of the American West to life. Well, you know, I was raised uh, ranch and cowboy and lived in a very small rural community that values were always strong and food was always good. And uh, when uh, I decided that I would make this my, my passion and my lifestyle, I was very blessed to have a beautiful young woman come along and tell me that, hey, I think we can do this together. And uh, we try to create something that's in Mother Nature's kitchen that anybody can do inside or outside. But it's it's always been such a blessing, Susie, for us to be able to go on big ranches and cook for working cowboys and, and see the things we've got to see because they will truly take your breath away from you. So a little bit of background on you. You were raised in the southwest corner of Oklahoma in a place called Hollis, and you still live there. You've been a cowboy all your life, but at a certain point, you changed gears a little bit and started cooking for elk hunters, and you've been cooking ever since. Cowboys have played an important role in America's culinary traditions dating back to the 1700s. Tell me about your mom. How did she encourage your love of cooking? We always uh, told ourselves, I remember mama telling us when we were little, we may not have much, but by the faith in God and the blessings that we have, we're going to put it on the table and it will nourish our bodies and we will think it is a feast. So uh, I always took uh, great pride in and what mama would try to teach me in the kitchen when I was young to cook. I can remember the first thing I ever made and the recipes in the cookbook, Ain't Ola's Old Fashioned Chocolate Cake. And I can remember standing on a stool, Susie, and stirring that batter with one of them old mixers. And uh, I'm thinking, you know, this is the best thing ever. I like cooking. You could sort of dip your finger in there every once in a while and get you a bite. But I didn't know at that time that you had to wash dishes also. <laughs> you know, or I might have quit a little, but I've seen my mother start with very little and make it into something great. I think that's one reason that uh, I, I learned to improvise so well, because, I mean, we lived 12 miles from town at the time. And uh, if you didn't have it, you wasn't just going to run to the store and get it. You found out something that would work in its place. Was she born in Hollis, too? No, she was uh, born uh, over about 70 miles from here, north of Granite, Oklahoma, or I'd say 60, probably uh, in a little Lake Creek community. And uh, then she moved to Amarillo later on in life, and I can always remember her telling the story, and uh, this was the way my mother was. She said, you know, we were so poor that when we moved to Amarillo, they said you had to have shoes to go to school, and she told herself, I've never had a new pair of shoes. Well, my mother never did go to school neither that time, you know, so, but she never let her keep that from her. She 
ended up getting an education, but it was one of them deals to where she always told me, you have to put heart into everything you do, whether you're barefooted or got shoes on. As we talked about before, I grew up in Kansas, and even though I live in New York City, my heart is still in Kansas. I love the prairie more than any place else in the entire world. Describe stepping out of the cowboy teepee at 5 a.m. in the morning, or I think probably earlier, and the stars are close enough you can touch and the simplicity and beauty of it all. You know, it's uh, it's a great thing to me, and most of our mornings on a ranch do start any, uh, very early from uh, 2.45 to 4 o'clock in the morning, depending on where you're at and what season it is, spring or fall. But when you can step out of that teepee and you're in 300,000 acres, and there's no lights, there's no cars, there's no sound, but what is the sound of Mother Nature, and maybe horses or cattle stirring around somewhere, and the night creatures, the hoot owls, the coyotes, but when you can look up at them stars, and they are so bright, it just just sort of gives you a very peaceful feeling that you're in the right place, and uh, I never take for granted any of them mornings that I get to see, and uh, I cherish every one of them. There aren't any grocery stores out on the range. I imagine you have to be so organized with your grocery list so you don't forget an ingredient. But you also have to be creative with ingredients, right? Yeah, I can remember telling Shan one of the first big ranches she cooked on, we were 70 miles from the nearest town. And I told her, I said, we will make a grocery list and we will make a menu. We're going to be there five weeks. Uh, the, the ranch people, they'll buy the groceries, put it at headquarters when we stock up about once a week. But I said, we will go over this menu time after time before we ever get there and we'll add three to four days to it because Mother Nature is really in control here. You don't know if you're going to get rained out, blowed out. Uh, something could happen to where you have to stay in four to five days more. So you, you take extra so when you get out there and you're on one of them recipes and you think, man, I ain't got no buttermilk. I wish I had some. Well, that's when you learn to do that old milk and uh, lemon juice, or you can add a little milk and vinegar and you make your own. Uh, we we got pretty close to running out of eggs one morning, and I, we, we had just enough. But I can remember telling Shan, I said, if you look across there, looks like it might be about four or five miles over there's a tree. I said, we'll trot over there and see if there's a bird nest. And she said, are you serious? And I said, no, we do have enough <laughs> eggs to get through on this one. But you do learn to, what will take the place of them, some things. Or you get creative and you think, hey, I'm going to add this to this, just see what happens. Cowboys were always great taste testers, and if their plate come back clean and they went back for third and fourth helpings, hey, you knew it was a keeper. You're known for mastering the historic way of cooking with a chuck wagon. The first time you ate off a chuck wagon was when you were 10. Can you describe this? We were across the river over uh, north of Quanah, Texas, and uh, I was just really uh, thinking that I was in a land among giants, all of these old timers were my hero, my dad, and all those old cowboys that he'd run around with. And they had a wagon parked out there by this Brandon pen. And uh, I don't, I don't ever remember knowing the cook's name. He was sort of a little overweight. His old back was pretty well bent from all the years. I guess he'd been bending over picking up iron. But I can remember the smell of the coffee, one of the first things. I mean, coffee was a staple that stayed on all day long, all night. Next morning, everything was there. But when you get in line, there was such a etiquette that went on to be 
at a place like that. You didn't go under the fly of the wagon, which was the tarp, unless you were asked. Everybody got in line. Everybody took their hat off. You blessed the food, and then you eat. And uh, I was thinking, this guy's a pretty good cook. I know you're not supposed to complain. He wasn't as good a cook as I thought my mother was. And I told my dad later that day that I said, this guy, he don't cook as good as mama. And I remember my dad smiling and looking at me too. And he said, he don't look good as mama neither. So, uh, <laughs> but it, it was something I learned. No matter what job the cook does, he's going to try to make it, if he's a good cook, edible, uh, very nourishing and hot and on time if he can. How do you keep things hot? Well, we're we're pretty well blessed with old Bertha, and that's a uh, wood stove we got. She raised, weighs about 345 pounds, and it's got a sort of a lip on the backside, a folding tray that comes off that's off the heat, but it'll still keep something warm for as long as you need it. Or if it's in a Dutch oven, too, you can just set her on a taller trivet, which keeps it off the ground, and you just put a little heat under it, and you can keep it warm and I've always told Shannon and always remember, too, when you're on a ranch and it comes time for that noon meal, you could be from 11 to 3. You know, most of the time they're pretty good about coming in, but a cow don't own a watch and she don't care if she makes enough trouble that you don't even get lunch. So in 1996, the governor of Oklahoma named you the official chuckwagon cook of Oklahoma. So you have an 1876 Studebaker chuckwagon. What's the story behind this? Well, I can remember uh, looking for a wagon when I got through guiding elk hunters one year. I thought, you know, I think a man might could make a living going back and just cooking for some of them ranches that I used to to visit and to work on. And um, I got to looking for a wagon. And at the time I was looking, they're, they're not real plentiful in some places. And I found an old wagon that was in Spur, Texas, and it was uh, in pretty good shape. I ended up having to do some work on it, but it had come out of a barn and was reassembled uh, the origin was 1876, and it was a Studebaker chuck wagon. Studebakers were known for their for their great workmanship, but also they had a really, really good seat that had a lot of good iron work to it. And the old seat that was on this wagon had just rotted away. Uh, the iron was not even salvageable, which uh, is sort of a treasure if you can get a wagon that's a Studebaker wagon that has the original seat. But uh, we rebuilt some of it, keep working on it. Uh, you know, you can't just go down to Jiffy Lube and say, hey, I need y'all to change oil in this and work on it. It's not like that. But uh, it's one of them deals where if you keep it in good working order, it'll pay you back every time you use it, just like cast iron. Are there any other Studebaker chuck wagons out there today, or do you have the last one? No, there's there's quite a few, really, when you get to look. And I have several friends that uh, have some Studebaker wagons. There's two in Missouri that I know of, and uh, they were the Cadillac of wagons. I mean, Abraham Lincoln had a Studebaker wagon, a little carriage. When he got to the White House, he requested one. So they have been very popular for a long time. You enjoy writing, and Shannon is a great editor. Talk a little bit about your process and collaboration. Well, I remember when we got together, Susie, I was telling her all these old ranch stories. We'd be going down the road that we'd been catering in somewhere, and uh, I'd be telling her stories. And she said, you know, you're going to write a blog And I said, I don't know if I know how to spell that or even know what it is. And uh, she'd get me in there on the computer and I'd be writing these stories and I'd, she'd say, okay, just email that to me. She'd be in another room and I'd send it in there and she'd say, okay, it's 1100 words. I really like where you're going, but now tell me the story like it, like it really happened. I want to feel it from the heart. And uh, I remember trying to write stuff in in school and I, I made a D in speech class 
when I was in high school because I didn't like to get up in front of people. I didn't like to really write things down. But uh, my dad fought a very long battle with cancer, which finally beat him. But it, writing was a way that I could deal with it. And uh, when Shan come along and would tell me, I, I want to hear your voice in it. I, I want people to know they're sitting down right here beside you. And uh, it is something that I guess uh, an old man told me one time we were cooking for them and then we, we had to do a little entertainment with it. He said, you know, you're the only person I know that can burn your food in your ears at the same time and we still enjoy it. So I read somewhere that Rux Martin, your famed cookbook editor, once said, I'm looking for authors who have a lifetime of experience and have something fresh to say. That is you and Shannon to a T. How did you get hooked up with Rux Martin? Well, first of all, let me tell you, we dearly, we dearly love Rux, and she is a mess. She's funny as she can be. Uh, we did Chopped Grill Masters. Uh, it's probably been nearly seven, eight years ago now. I can't even remember when it came out. And it, it we were in Shan's hometown in Elko, Nevada, and uh, we started having a watch party. It come out on a Sunday. And the next day, the phone rang off the hook. There was producers calling here, there, right and left, and want you to do something. But we had a message from a lady in New York City, Janice Danu, who was a book agent. So I called her, and she was from originally from the Nashville area, and she sort of understood what I was and what it was sort of about. And she said, do you have a cookbook? And I said, we have a self-published book, ma'am, paperback. She said, what you need is one of them hardbound, full-color cookbooks, because she said, I know it would be a treasure. And I remember she laughed at me. I said, ma'am, I can't afford one of them. And she said... You don't have to. And uh, we got hooked up with Rux the very first time that we went to New York City to present the proposal. And I told Shan we walked out of there. I said, that Rux Martin is good people. She understands uh, what this is about. And I think she will do us a great job. Uh, I'm glad they got the bid. It's always been a blessing. Uh, we've laughed back and forth with Rux for a long time. I'm going to read the first part of your touching dedication at the beginning of this cookbook. You wrote, We dedicate this book to the little places, the ones you may have traveled through going somewhere else, where Sunday socials after church offer not only five-star dining, but more importantly, fellowship. We don't talk much about fellowship much anymore. I'm curious to hear how fellowship shows up in your life. Well, it was always a, a central place was at a table when we were growing up. Uh, you gathered family around that table. You had great food at that table. There was conversation at that table. Uh, now when you go places and you go to a table, people seem to have a cell phone more in their hand than they do a fork. And um, yeah. I think it's time the world come back to a place to where, hey, let's sit down, let's visit, let's bless the food, and let's talk about family. Let's talk about the good things in life. And fellowship is not only just around a table. I mean, we've done it around so many old camps that we were in, visiting with cowboys and everything else. But the world could solve a lot of problems and be a better place if everybody just took time to sit down at a table and visit. A cowboy's day starts early and ends late. What are your evenings like after dinner out on the range? 
Well, a lot of times the evening meal would be at six, and especially if it's in the spring of the year, well, you know, it's still it's light till seven, seven thirty anyway. So you get the dishes done, and everybody's sort of just plumb through by we'll say seven, and it's really nice just to pull up a chair, and me and Shan can sit there. And sure, there's a lot of visiting that we do with cowboys, but to be able to just take that day in and say, you know, this was another great day above the grass that God has given us. But to hear the sounds, to watch a sun go down, it didn't go down behind a tree. It didn't go down behind a building. you got to watch it disappear plumb out of sight. The colors that are painted in them skies out there are some of the greatest things I've ever seen in life. And it just sort of takes your breath away every time you do get to see one. So jerky is a road warrior's survival snack. How do you make jerky without a dehydrator? Well, I can remember when we were young, especially if, you know, we raised our own beef and uh, at times um, daddy and them processed our own beef. But there would always be those pieces that mama would think, hey, these would make stew meat or these might make something. They're a little tough. But uh, I can remember her making jerky the very first time in an old oven that was an antique before she had it. But she always cracked that door just a little to let some of that moisture out of there. And the aroma that come through the house was some of the best thing ever. Because we hadn't been to stores and had jerky. We didn't we didn't know they had truck stops hardly. So we thought that was the greatest thing that my mother had probably invented one of the, the best things in the world. But as we got to going around and traveling, we didn't know they sold it in little uh, cellophane packages that you could buy it. But you do not have to have a dehydrator if you'll follow this recipe in the book because it's so easy. The secret really is letting that meat marinate a long time, which is uh, at least 24 hours. And, hey, it is some good eating. And you can spice it up if you'd like to change it, put more red pepper flakes in there. And uh, it has got me down the road many a day. Earlier this week, I made your recipe for green onion and ham scallop potatoes on page 136. Can you describe this recipe and what is the secret ingredient? This is something we always had on our table at any special occasion, uh, especially, I would say, most, most of the time it was Easter. But my mother would throw this out there, and man, oh, man, it'd be good. But Shan, she sort of took this to a new level. Uh, My mother really never did put ham in hers. And when Shan did this, but the secret ingredient to me, Susie, is the dip. The French onion dip that goes in there makes this so much more creamier, and the flavors that it brings out – this is a happy meal that don't come in a sack, and it, to me, I don't need nothing else. If I've got a spoon and one of these in front of me, I can eat the whole whole pan full. Totally, because sometimes scalloped potatoes can be bland, but yeah. I, th- I think the dip really brings some zing to it. Oh, it does, and it's you know when you can when you can add the mozzarella because my mother at times wouldn't put cheese on hers, and sometimes she did. It was mostly a a milk and flour sub, you know. Uh, substance going along with salt and pepper and some onion but when you take the ham the green onion and then you blend that dip in there with it again uh, it is so good and it's a full meal you don't need anything else yeah i mean if you just set the pan down in front of you and get your four or five big spoons and have everybody gather around you're in pretty good shape (laughs) now for my segment called my favorite cookbook Aside from this cookbook, what is your all-time favorite cookbook and why? I would say our first cookbook, uh, Taste of Cowboy, because it was the, the first one that we 
had put out. But my sister, and I guess I can call it a cookbook, uh, we were mentioning Cindy before she was born with cerebral palsy, and we ended up, Mama got her a typewriter, and an uncle of ours fixed her a cover that went on the keyboard, and my sister could type with her thumb. And she typed recipes that my mother, she had pin up there, and she had type them. And they were just in a little green binder, Susie, and uh, it was just called Cindy's Recipes. And these were things that had been around our house forever, but uh, also aunts, uh, neighbors, people that had come to family reunions, stuff that just you knew was a cherished dish. And to have that and still have it now that my sister's created, it is a treasure. Where can we find you on the web, YouTube, and social media? On that what thing I call the Google, you can just type in KentRollins.com and it'll come up. We have a great website. And, and Shan has took me a long way into the modern age. I mean, we, uh, we have a great YouTube channel and it's just Cowboy Kent Rollins as well. We, we're approaching a million subscribers now. We have a video that comes out every Wednesday at uh, 2.30 Central. And this is really where the title of the cookbook sort of stemmed from, was from our YouTube family, because we have such a large, faith-based, veteran, America-supporting bunch of people that I've ever known. And uh, I'm touched, Susie, by the, by the emails we get, the letters we get. Uh, we've got flags that have flew over aircraft carriers that servicemen and women have sent us. Uh, you know, it's very touching when, when I when I pay them tribute at the end of every video. I do it because I honor them, but they honor us so much in the sacrifices that they made. But they, when they send us something like that, if you want to see a cowboy cry, uh, they have wrote some letters that touch my heart so much. But um, we are proud to be on social media. We're there on Instagram, we're there on Twitter, and all of it is just Cowboy Kent Rollins. It'll get you there. As your mother used to say, in life and in cooking, we all require love and someone to ride along with. This has been so wonderful, Kent. Thanks so much for coming on Cookery by the Book podcast again. Well, Susie, you are like family to us, honey, and you're welcome in our camp anytime. Subscribe over on cookerybythebook.com. And thanks for listening to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book.